Welcome to the podcast version of 32 Bar Cut, the show. A series for performers, about performers, made by performers. Every week, we give audition advice, share personal experiences, and sit down with fellow colleagues in the performing arts to chat about their life in the industry. If you are hearing this message, you are not currently a subscriber and will only be hearing the first half of the podcast. If you would like to hear the full interview, including the Curtain Call series, you'll want to head over to 32barcup.com, where you can find a link to our Patreon page. There you will have exclusive access to the entire video and private RSS podcast feed, as well as other subscriber-only content. Thanks for listening. Without further ado, on to the show. Welcome to 32 Bar Cut, the show. Today we have a very exciting guest. He is the producer of Disney Theatricals, Thomas Schumacher. Welcome to the show. (laughs) I am so excited to be with you, particularly right now after what you've been through this week. It's crazy. This this week is so historical. I can't even believe that we that we're here. You know, there's so many talks of, well, we might be able to come back this date or we might be able to come back this date. We're just not sure. So much insecurity with all of it. You know, the world is just something we don't even know anymore. But here we are. We made it to the finish line. You were in the audience. But before oh, yeah. we get into that, before we get into that, the first thing I ask everyone when they come on, how are you? Um, I'm well. I, I've, uh, it's interesting because this is, I've only come back to the States for four days to be here for Lion King. So I've been living in England mostly since wow. June 1st. And I flew over so we could start getting those shows going. And I came back just for Lion King. And then tomorrow I begin the journey back. And then I don't come home to New York, where, which where I live, until the second week of November. So wow. it's a long time away. June, Essentially June 1st to November 8th or 9th with four days back in the middle. Wow. That is, that is a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah. Your job is so interesting in that I, I, I personally, I know you're the producer of Disney theatricals, and I know that you're the face of of what we do and and you make things happen, but I don't know what a producer does. What does a producer do and how do they make this thing work for us? Well, it's interesting because you're not wrong to not have a sense of the whole thing because our relationship is all about you and the Lion King. And then you also as a member of the Disney theatrical family. So we pull you into other stuff, but that's what you see. Um, I actually, uh, I grew up only wanting to do theater and I started seeing theater at a very young age. I started making theater before I'd ever seen a professional person do theater. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had, I grew up in San Francisco and uh, had enormous support around me for the arts, not in my family. No one in my family ever cared about the performing arts. But outside, I started working in the performing arts and I went to college to be a theater major and I started working immediately after that. Um, I graduated and I went to work in the theater to train to be a producer. So it's all I've really wanted to do since I hung up my wig on the final performance of Pippin <laughs> in 19, the summer of 1979 at Santa Ro- in Santa Rosa at Summer Repertory Theater. So I was doing all these shows in rep and I, put, I played Pippin. And I always threaten my friend Stephen Schwartz with, I'm going to sing for you if you don't, you know, give me my way on this story <laughs> point. But um, anyway, I hung my wig up and said, I'm going to go be a producer. 
So what a producer does fundamentally, um, and, and it changes whether you're institutionally producing, which is what we do, or independently producing. Um, independent producers on Broadway will encounter a piece of material either because somebody brought it to them or because they went and sought it or because they fundamentally put it together. And then those people have to go raise money and then they put the show on and then they hope it works and they, they then it becomes a business. But I've always worked institutionally. So I grew up in the nonprofit, which always is a surprise to people because something as commercial as Disney, you assume I have a business degree or I, I don't have any of that. I don't have a business degree. I don't have it. No MBA, none of that. Everything I know I learned on the job, except how to make theater, which I learned in school and on the job. My job as an institutional producer is to run a company, Disney Theatrical, which is a big staff. It's like a like a like a nonprofit regional theater. There's, you know, we have a publicity department, we have a marketing department, we have a production department, we have a development department, we have an education department. And all of that eventually comes up to me and I have to represent that inside the Walt Disney Company. I don't have to raise money. I um but because we have been so successful at Disney we haven't had to ask Disney for any money in, oh, 20 plus years, mostly because Beauty and the Beast started and became very successful. And then Lion King has always created the cash flow by which we could do other stuff. So my job is to make sure that we deliver on the promise to our shareholders that we're making money, to deliver on the promise of our um, aesthetic point of view that we will we will always endeavor to surprise, delight, and and move the needle forward somehow, and that we will be inclusive in our who we make shows with. Um, and then, when we are lucky to have a hit, then we take it around the world. And it's our job at Disney Theatrical to so while well, you've been waiting to get started and rehearsing, I've been in. England, right? And we got Mary Poppins back up at the Prince Edward Theater in London. We got Lion King back up at the Lyceum in London. We got a brand new production of Frozen on its feet at the Theater Royal Drury Lane. We got a brand new production of Beauty and the Beast, which is gorgeous, um, in Bristol, which will tour the UK. And we oversaw a license of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So I'm licensing shows. I'm um, literally in the room producing shows. Sometimes I'm under a piece of furniture with a head carpenter saying, how do we shoot smoke out of this? Or I'm in a with, in the box office saying, how do we sell more tickets? It could be any of that. That's a long answer to your short question. Oh, no, but that that is a very, that is the thorough answer that I was looking for. Because um, producers, like you said, do all sorts of things. And, and there's producers that have to raise money. So it's very interesting to hear you say, hey, we don't have to do that anymore. There's other things. There's other ways that I'm used and other ways that I do my job, my role here. But I'm held accountable for the money. Yes. So, <laughs> and you know, because I mean, I've blown it a couple of times and when I, <laughs> and when I don't get it right, I am accountable for that. So for example, say we do a show like, um, well, the two examples, it's only happened twice out of 10 or more shows we've done um, with Tarzan and Little Mermaid, neither one of them, they lost money on Broadway. But I went out and found partners, took those shows around the world. Tarzan played over a decade in Germany. It's been seen all over the world, everywhere. Same for Little Mermaid. Um, and they, they, they've, they're all, you know, um, profitable now. So even though they lost money on Broadway, I had to go dig out of that hole, fill it back up with money, yeah. and then move it forward. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, uh, But if you blow it, and we're held responsible. And I, I, can't, I can't spend more money every week on a show than it's making. Yeah, because 
A, that's irresponsible, and B, it violates the precepts of a commercial company. But I imagine, too, you have to take risks, right? In this field, it's it's theater. It can't all be safe. And I, I mean, so 1997, you're, we're workshopping The Lion King. Uh, you've made the decision that Julie Tamer, she's the director. This is going to be the, the one for this show. What did that feel like? It seems like such a huge risk and so much money to put forward. Did you know it was going to be a hit? No. The thing, the thing that happened is um, in 1990, I was um, asked by the then chairman of Disney Studios, a really smart guy named Jeffrey Katzenberg, who then founded DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. But, but Jeffrey was then running Disney Studios. And, and I, had, I had produced my first movie for Disney. I'd never made a movie before. And because, the rescuers wanted, down under. Down under. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, and I produced that, and Jeffrey then said, "Let's do something else." And I said, "Okay." And he handed me two things. One was the Nightmare Before Christmas with Tim Burton, mm. and the other one was um, this thing called King of the Beasts, which became The Lion King. And it's a long saga, and that's been talked about a lot. But how that movie got made. But the movie did get made. And while the movie was being made, I stepped away from being the day-to-day producer, became the executive producer, because I took over Disney animation development and all the ideas like Pocahontas and Mulan and all those things. And um, then the chairman of the studio, uh, the company rather, Michael Eisner, who ironically, I was just emailing with yesterday. He's been out of Disney for 15 years or something now, but he reached out because he was, he saw Lion King was in the news and he went, how did it go? You know? (laughs) So we were going back and forth, but he came to me and said, we should put Lion King on stage. And I told him it was the worst idea I'd ever heard. Wow. And, and he said, no, no, we should do it. And I said, no, no, we're not going to do that. You can't make it look like the movie. That seems to be the goal around here and it'll never work. And finally he did point out that he was my boss and um, (laughs) that, that, that I should go do it. And so I literally went back to my office and flipped through my Rolodex which is what we did back then because we didn't have a contact file on a computer because we didn't have a computer. And I, I called Julie Taymor at home from a number I had from 10 years before when I had tried to work with her before Disney. Wow. And I literally just called her at home and she goes, hi, <laughs> how you been? <laughs> and, um, and she really hadn't heard of The Lion King. And by this time it was the biggest movie in the world at the time. And, but of course she hadn't heard of it. And, um, but I thought that's a good sign. So we started working on this idea. We workshopped it. And funnily enough, during the pandemic or right before the pandemic, I was cleaning some files and I came across an unmarked video and I didn't know what it was. And I sent it to this company. You can put things in a box and they send you video and in a box and they'll send you back a digital copy. I said, I wonder what was on that video. It was the original workshop to <laughs> the Lion King wow. with Keith David as Mufasa, <laughs> oh Mario Cantone as Timon. I can totally see Keith David as Mufasa. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I think he was wondering what that big thing was on his head. But he was. (laughs) Anyway, we had the whole thing. But even Garth demonstrating um, how how, um, the the gazelles would work with the on your head and on the arms, all in cardboard. And we did this workshop. And everyone from the Walt Disney Company, Michael Eisner, Michael Ovitz worked there then, and a man named Joe Roth, who was out of the studio, they didn't get it at all and they shut it down so when you ask was it a risk yeah they and it was it was really our fault that they didn't get it I mean I I always tell the story you know to be like how could you miss it but we had them sitting so close 
they didn't understand what they were looking at. The big picture. And mm. when they all drove away and left us at, at um, 890 Broadway, you know, the old rehearsal studio down there, Michael Bennett's old building. Um, when they all drove away, Peter Schneider, who I did the show with originally, and my, my virtual sibling, and Julie Taymor and I were out front saying, well, that didn't go well. <laughs> and Peter wisely said, we have to, we have to show them the thing in scale. And we flew out to California and we convinced Michael Eisner to come back a couple of months, three months later. And we built three versions of Mufa Scar. We built three versions of Zazu and three versions of Timon. And then we demonstrated them on the stage of Beauty and the Beast in full light with Michael 15 rows back, Michael Eisner. And he bought into it and we raced to get it done and ran off to Minneapolis. We never got the show to run before we did the first preview. We couldn't, the first two weeks of previews, we couldn't get out of the, we couldn't get into the stampede. Wow. It took, we had to stop the show for like six minutes. Oh. And and so I would go on stage and do a speech before the show about, we're going to stop and change some scenery, stay in your seats. Yes. I mean, we, we had no idea what we were doing and none of us had ever done a Broadway show before. Wow. So it was a risk, but it was, um, and, and everyone thought it was a terrible idea. And we, we felt there was something there. And then, of course, audiences went crazy. And um, the rest is, you know, kind of theatrical history. You just, you never know. You never know. And and um, it's interesting, too, because I was going to ask you this. With being an actor, I, I'm i at the mercy, right? I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the will of, of a, a director or a casting director. I'm waiting for the phone to ring. I... I there's so very little I'm in control of. And I'm curious if that's how you feel sometimes as a producer that you'll, you present this project and then you're kind of at the mercy of, will this work or not? Well, yeah, first off, let's address the fact that as an actor, the, the two biggest things you are in control of is the original yes or no, and then how you are able to fulfill the vision of the people you came to be with. I mean, just imagine for a second. I mean, people that I um, that I so love and adore. You know, we lost Sam Wright this year, which is for those of us who knew Sam and worked with him. His extraordinary generosity. He was the most experienced person in that theater. Wow! Right? He was a star already. He was a he was a grown man wearing this thing on his head, and I remember. Um, like walking up to him, you know, I walked house left down the, the aisle in Minneapolis and he was on stage for the longest time um, rehearsing. Um, and it was the scene after um, They Live in You when he does that sort of lotus pose and little Simba does it, which is among my like top 10 favorite things in The Lion King. And it makes me, whenever it's perfectly timed out just right with the lights and the kid doing everything and putting the, the headdress back on him, I... I always burst into tears. And I said, Sam, I'm so sorry it's taking this long. And he said, look at me. I'm playing a king. Yeah. <laughs> and he meant everything about being a black man playing a king, about a show filled, filled with black people, but he's not playing a role dependent on race. It was a whole lot of that stuff, as you know. We can get into that later if you want. But, yeah. And the leap of faith Sam took with Julie. And then let's go to the other side of the equation. It's no secret. Everyone knows I'm very close to and adore Heather Headley and we've worked <laughs> together a lot and she created the role of Nala. She was Audra's understudy in um, Ragtime in Canada when we cast her and she had left 
um, Northwestern. She left college to right. go be with, to cover for Audra. And then we cast her. And Audra's the one who said, Heather, you have to go do this. So here we have Sam Wright and Heather Headley. One very experienced, been the lead in many shows, Pippin, and of course, Tap Dance Kid and all this stuff. And then here's Heather Headley, like never actually, is the Broadway debut, having to create a character that's, has five lines in the movie basically. And, and each one of them had faith in the process and did everything they could do to fulfill the yes, mm -hmm. the yes to do it. Now how do the yes has to be, how do I do it? So th that's a, that's a lot of control and a lot of faith. Producers interestingly have a lot of control because if you, at least the way I do it or we do it, I pick everybody, right? So I went to Julie Taymor and then Julie Taymor came to me and said, okay, what about, we had actually had a different designer before Richard Hudson and then that designer didn't want to do it and Julie, it didn't work. So then we went to Richard Hudson and Julie came to me and said, what about Garth Fagan? And I said, interestingly, the same festival I wanted to work with you on, I was trying to work with Garth on, so I've known his work forever. I would love to work with Garth. Um, Lebo, I already knew, right? Cause we'd already made the movie together right. and we, and we, became very close during that. Not every people know that too. I mean, we're very close to Lebo and we became very close during that. So we had a lot, there were, it was just bringing together this group, Mark Mancina, who worked so much on the music um, and probably is not really even known for it, but wrote a lot of these songs, as you know, and um, we all knew each other. And then we were adding Julie, who I didn't know. And so there's the picking people part. And then there's the having faith in process because you have to submit you have to submit to other people's visions. And then, then you, in a sense, become a version of an editor. Mm. You're the If, I think, you do this right, you become a partner with each person to the degree that they're comfortable doing that, to say, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Um, Julie Taymor is an artist of extraordinary power and depth. But there's a whole lot of stuff that's not on that stage that she created or thought about. Mm -hmm. And it's not there because either we looked at it and said that won't fit, whether it's fit artistically, fit physically. And you have to be there for them, but also be willing to say, you know, this moment's not going to work. Yeah. And if you have that relationship, um, and Julian, it was funny, we reenacted it all um, when we were doing Lion King in Shanghai because we were doing it in Mandarin. And, but with our component of South African actors who all had to learn Mandarin and, um, which is something that's a lot. Um, that's a lot. And we were there and I was sitting with her at the director's table and she goes, how did we originally stage this moment? Cause it's not working. <laughs> and so we were just back in it again. And I think when people are of that extraordinary talent, you have to submit to it, but not give up everything to it. Yes. Yes. I, I think that word you use editing is 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 key. It makes sense, you know. Um they put it all together, they do, you know, make it make it magical, but then you give it more nuance and just take things out that need to be taken out so that it really works. And that is sustainable because honestly, The Lion King is such a a, a monster of a show that uh I could imagine you know, if it was in, in Julie's original vision, you could probably do it one night and then everyone is broken and done and like passed out somewhere. Well, she's she's a genius and I, I just adore her without limit. But 
we all have we all need someone to say i get that but and 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 she's fantastic with that she um I, I you know anyone who says otherwise simply hasn't worked with her she's fantastic about partnering and coming together and saying these are my ideas and um and there was a lot of sharing of ideas and and in the beginning you know the show you're doing is like 12 minutes shorter than the show we opened with on broadway yes yeah. i have heard on the that. 10th on a 10th yeah. anniversary we 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 cut on 10th anniversary we cut um quite a bit because it was it was long, you know, and we never had a chance to fine tune it. And, mm. um, and th- you know, there's so many people who have been part of the history of this. Michelle Steckler, who was with us from the very beginning as Julie's associate director and and then then became the associate producer. Aubrey Lynch. I don't know if you know Aubrey, but Aubrey was yeah. the last dancer cast by Alvin Ailey for the Alvin Ailey Company. He was a company member, became choreographer. Then he became dance supervisor. Then he became associate producer, did 10 companies around the world. And now he has a big fancy job at ABT. But... <laughs> But um, it's it's funny because now, you know, somehow I was a lot older than Aubrey when we did it. And somehow our ages have sort of merged as you get older. <laughs> and he's a frequent guest in my house. We spend a lot of time together. And, I and feel like now we just talk. Yeah, Aging in reverse or something. <laughs> well, that's, that's deeply irritating. <laughs> <laughs> that's deeply irritating for all of us. Yeah. It's um OK. So we haven't talked about this yet, but. You were in the audience of our, our first performance back. What was that experience like for you? Well, of course, when you have a special performance like that, like a first night back, um, I, I was filled with a lot of emotion because I'm surrounded by, because Garth was there and Aubrey was sitting, he was in my group sitting two seats away from me, Aubrey Lynch. And, and, and my husband was with me and, you know, he lived through the entire, it was his idea that the movie had songs. I mean, mm-hmm. so, I mean, we're about to celebrate our 40th anniversary. So he's been through it all, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, to be with, and I was sitting right behind Julie with my hands on her shoulders and, you know, it was, and, 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 and her, her other half, Elliot Golden was there. So, you know, it was all of us together. And so that was deeply moving and Lebo was right there. So we were all together. So that's moving. But then I, I, you know, I've been, as we've been opening the shows, I'd already been through this in London with the company there, which opened two years after um, Broadway. Um, So I, I knew kind of what it was going to feel like from an audience perspective, but then in the American context for me, I couldn't help but look at that stage and know the stories of so many people who I wouldn't, out here that's for them to tell their stories but you know we had company members who went through serious trauma mm-hmm. we had company members in south africa who weren't sure they were ever going to get out of the hospital mm-hmm. we had people who really struggled and were hurt and were damaged and and, and um and suffered a great deal during the pandemic and to pretend that didn't happen is to deny the truth of why theater is powerful so I'm watching a stage knowing so many personal stories. I know the people on that stage who um, were um, fine, right? We have friends in the show, principal actors in the show who, you know, turn their house into a studio, make it happen, do it, do the job, move forward. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And we have other people who literally thought they could, weren't going to ever breathe again, let alone sing so gloriously. Mm-hmm. We have people like Brandon who are brand new coming in. Like, this is my chance, right? That's that's its own story. Um, we have people who really went through, and we had people up there who were very frightened. 
And that also includes people backstage who I've known forever. Um, and I, I have to own that, right? I want everyone to be safe, which is why I'm so happy about the New York mandates for everyone's vaccinated and we're going to take care of people and we're going to test all the time and we're going to do all this because I want everyone, the crew, the orchestra. I mean, Dave, who plays the flute in The Lion King, I mean, he, he's been with us since, he's been there since the beginning, yes. right? I mean, that, and, and everybody is bringing their own truth to it. And I can't pretend that didn't happen. We had a case, you were, um, you were probably on a call when an actor in The Lion King, who I've known for many, 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 many years, um, and, and she and I see each other outside of the show and she goes to events with me all the time and I love her. And she like spoke up about hair, mm-hmm. right? Things that the audience isn't thinking about, but things mm-hmm. that they, uh, which was, and, and there is great respect and affection between the two of us, but she was willing to be so candid with me. I could not think about that while I was watching her and you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and I adore her and there she was just beaming and glowing and being unbelievably funny and brilliant in the show and watching her in the curtain call. I literally burst into tears and I told her this afterwards because all those stories that people don't think matter, mm-hmm. matter enormously, the triumphs, the failures, the fear, the everything, the, the, the seeking, um, a better work environment, all of this together. So when I'm looking at the show and I always say this, it's always about people to me, yeah. but it is about the people to me, right? Mm-hmm. You're playing animals, but it's about the people. And I, and there is no Lion King without, without those people backstage who get you dressed, get your wig on you, get that costume on you, get the makeup on you, who change, you know, you don't have to change your clothes a lot during the show. Other people have some 20 changes during yes. the show. Yes. These people are all the life force of the show on stage and off stage. And because I've been around it so long and was there when we invented it, I know, right. You know, when we do that stampede, I know what the female dancing wildebeests wore in the very beginning that we had to alter because they were all just breathing raffia. I know what those costumes weighed before we redesigned them. Mm -hmm. I know. Right. So um, that doesn't mean I, I know their individual experiences. I only know what they can share with me, but it does mean that I have to react to it. So I'm seeing all of that when the show happens. That's a, that's such a rich experience because you know, it so intimately, you can't just watch it. You're it's almost as if you're on stage (laughs) with us experiencing it because you know, everyone so intimately and you know, the history of the show and what's going on backstage. I think, cause the audience, they see the show, but unless they have some sort of history or uh, relationship with theater, I don't think they, they give a second thought about dressers or puppets or makeup or what goes on backstage, but there's so much happening. So much. I think that, yes, but I think that they may not know it, but they feel it. Ah. And, you know, and I'll give you two examples. One is obviously, you know, those of us who were there in the very, very, very beginning and who watched this young man, Jason Ray's, invent the character of Simba, right? So different than what the character had been in the movie. And, you know, his endless night, his, you know, just, it, you know, it's a, it's a heartbreaking story. And many of us stood by him and tried to help him navigate a life that he couldn't mm-hmm. navigate, right? So that... 
that ended, you know, so horribly. And, but I can't help but think about that. Right. So yes, the audience doesn't know what that is. The people who have been, you know, all that, they can't possibly know that. But let me give you an example. Everybody I know, and you may know this about me, I, I spend a great deal of time in Italy and I, um, and I love classical art and I study it and I, and I, I care about it. And everybody I know tells me when they walk in and look at Michelangelo's David for the first time, how they cry. They just, and it's inexplicable because they've seen scaled copies everywhere. Things exactly the same size, looks exactly the same. There are casts of it in plaster in, in London and stuff. But somehow seeing it, they don't know how that happened. They don't know how this block of marble was brought in from Carrera to, to Florence. They don't know that it had these weird seams in it that no one wanted to work with it. They don't know that Michelangelo wanted to make this triumphant figure of David as a symbol of Tuscany, of, 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 of defending itself against marauders. They don't know how he drew it and then chipped away and drilled. He doesn't, they don't know that someone had to rub it with wet straw to get that because there was no such thing as sandpaper. And they don't know any of that. And yet they feel it. And there's no question for me that the audience, and Julie will tell you this, the audience doesn't look at every one of those beads on your corset. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we donated some of those corsets and costumes to the Victorian Albert Museum in, in, in London because they are art. And, but when we donated them, I asked the lady who did all the beading in London to be with us when we did it. Because people don't know who she is. They don't know how she beads it. They don't know what those beads are. And you know, because you have an intimate relationship with yes. that costume. <laughs> the intricacy and the beauty of it. But I agree with Julie, they feel it. They don't know it, but they somehow feel it. That the hand of the artist whether it's the person who made the stuff you're wearing or you, mm -hmm. right? When, when you're, they don't know what Giza Boyabo means. Yeah. They don't know, but they feel, but it. They feel it. Yes. They yes. feel it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I want to circle back a bit because you, you, t you mentioned our chats, the chats we had uh, over zoom during the break. For those of you watching, we, had chats with our producers over the break. And it really came about after the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, deaths and, and the, the protests around that. And I guess the rise or reemergence of acknowledgement of police brutality, but also uh, microaggressions at work and injustices and discrimination at work and, and how to navigate through that. And so you and Anne asked us if we would like to meet and talk about this. And so I want to hear from you about uh, what Disney Theatricals is doing to uh, to fashion a better world for us and, and, and make this all happen in a way that protects everyone at work. So, well, it's an appropriate question, and it shifts slightly between companies of shows, as mm. you know, um, if you if you just assemble all of our shows together, going all the way back, we employ. Well, I think everyone else has come up with a statistic. I don't know that it's true, but we certainly employ more people of color than any other individual producer on shows of this scale. Whether it's 
shows obviously like Lion King or even Aladdin, but even how we've chosen to produce Frozen, right? Mm-hmm. That, that there's, a, there's a consciousness about those choices. So that brings with it a responsibility. And it's very different if you're touring in The Lion King, right? And so, for example, in the calls with um, the tour, you know, the t- there have been many tours of The Lion King out. But there was a big shift when we, we had played every major city in America five times. So we couldn't go back anymore. So we said, what if we fashioned a smaller, slightly smaller version that would that would look very big in a small town, you know? But the thing that we didn't pay attention to was, and I, this is not, there's, I'm just, I, there's no excuse for this failure other than, um, and it's not an excuse, it's a real ignorance. A blind or an, spot. A whole, oh. Yeah, a blind spot, mm-hmm. if you will, because... It didn't, it just didn't occur to me the world in some places can be as terrible as it is. And Mm. so we sent a tour out playing small towns and I don't think provided enough security and support Mm. for the company. And we were in towns that just weren't used to a group arriving with their New York pride, their I'm part of the Lion King, I just operate freely here. And we did not... Um, step up because we didn't, we, it just, we just didn't know. And people really raised that from the tours. And so to that end, we now travel with security for the company. Mm. Like that's, and I use that as an example of something really overt, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That we now have security people who are with the company. They strategize as we go into different cities. They work with local law enforcement. Please understand we're bringing this, the most respected company of people you can bring into your town. This is what we're going to expect from you for the venues and also for the artists in the show, how we're going to, how we're going to be there for you. Does that erase um, uh, every problem that we could encounter? No, but it means that we're getting ahead of it. Yeah. So that's, that's a very practical thing. Another practical thing that grew out of these conversations and we referenced it um, uh, before is something that for particularly for, non-black members of your audience, it would never occur to them, probably, prior to all of this, the the challenges and demands and needs for Afro-textured hair. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't, and by the way, there's a whole lot of ladies on Broadway who have hair issues from having their hair in pin curls every night, what we call wig prep. Mm-hmm. Um, because every night, you, but how do we manage hair? Mm-hmm. And so um, because it's about the prep of the hair, the taking care of the hair, management of hair, building, in our case, puppets and masks that can accommodate hair. How do we do it? And also, equally importantly, what do we tell people when they audition? Mm-hmm. What are you told before you get cast and then told, oh, you're going to have to cut that hair off because you've got dreads that go away down your back or you've got extensions or you've got this or that. You need to know if you would like to be in the show, there are certain things that are going to work and bright blue 38 inch extensions going down your back are not going to work in the Lion King. So we have to figure out how to manage the process with respect and dignity and, and, and honesty and, and being direct. Mm -hmm. And so to that end, we brought in a bunch of consultants who've worked with our hair and makeup team to talk about how to manage hair, how to take care of hair, how to be respectful of hair, how to recognize that hair can be sacred for people. And, and we've, and I've taken workshops in that, um, because 
I think that if, unless you're told, and you know, and even the, and the Hair and the Makeup Union has participated with us at Disney in this because they don't have the information either, mm-hmm. which I'm, I have found fascinating. And in our own industry, the backstage hair and makeup people are not as experienced, in fact, as some elements of television and film because I don't know why. I have no excuse for that. And the, the level of complexity had never been presented to me as directly as it was. And so I've taken, we've taken great action on that. And then there's issues, by the way, you're welcome to ask me anything you want, but, but there's issues in terms of text and content within mm. scenes. And there are issues about how those scenes are directed and or taught. Oh, I see. That, yes, yes. And that we need to be respectful of. Because um, I think sometimes people who are as resident directors, associate directors, people who are working with the company may be so far removed from how that, that the scene was originally created with a set of actors. Mm-hmm. They might be using a shorthand that is um, either inaccurate or disrespectful or just completely inappropriate. And we have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. How we can talk about the scene. In some cases, there's dialogue on some of our shows that might have been okay when a film was animated or, but when it's a theatrical experience and you're looking at actors, there's dialogue that needs to be debated. And by the way, everyone does not agree. And it's, and it doesn't divide with one group agrees and one group doesn't because even within playing the same parts or how they're acted or how they're spoken about, but we need a, a much, much higher awareness of how we come to that scene with the respect we bring into that scene and recognizing the lived experience of the person who's going to be playing that part. Yeah. And how are they taught the role and how do they respond to it? That's just scratching the surface of things that I learned in those discussions. Yeah, and I know it's what was amazing about that for me, from my perspective, is that when you for me, when I booked The Lion King, my life changed. Right. So I'm just excited to be a part of the cast. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to say anything that's going to upset anyone. I'm good. I'm good. You know, and. I think that most actors feel that way when they get a wonderful opportunity, you don't want to be the squeaky wheel. But when we had those meetings and we were able to really talk freely about different ways we were feeling, uh, it, it, it opened doors and I think it all made us feel closer and able to really access you and Anne in a way that would benefit everyone and, and when, when we are gone and new newer people come into the cast, it will benefit them as well. And when you put up another production for Disney theatricals, they'll be benefited by these talks. And so even though it's uh, icky and difficult in the moment, it all works out. I mean, we did try to make them as, um, we tried to reduce the ick as much as possible, but but when there's something icky to be talked about, you can't run away from it. And Anne, we keep referencing Anne, Anne Court is, um, co-producer of Lion King. She's been with Disney Theatrical for a very long time. She grew up in the theater. She was an actress at Stratford when she was young. She is um, such a trusted and close ally and she cares about the Lion King so much and so deeply knows it. And this, um, and we've had to sort of divide and conquer all these territories around the world as we split up. So like I'm heading, I'll be in Holland this week. I'll be in Liverpool and Holland this coming week, one on wow. beauty and, <laughs> and then on a new Aladdin in Holland. And she's going to be with the Aladdin company here and then manage it. So, you know, we divide up, but Ann Court and I wanted to do those meetings without someone between us and the company. Mm. And it was important, but it's also important 
and that's why I was so grateful to particularly either long-term ensemble members or who felt feel more comfortable or long-term principals in the show just speaking up mm-hmm. because it gives it lets everyone else know that you have to be able to do that. Now there are certain things that are never going to change. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Broadway context, we do eight a week. The entire economy of Broadway is built on eight performances a week. Maybe someday someone will change that, but that's going to change the economy of how it works. Mm-hmm. There are things that are not going to change, like when you're in the ensemble of a show, you're playing the part as directed, as designed, and as it's always been, and you're doing the choreography as it's been created and as hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have done it around the world. A lot of these things are not going to change mm-hmm. because it's a show that you want to know whenever you see it, you're seeing that version, mm-hmm. right? And that there's no question, you know, L. Stephen. Taylor, who is so great as Mufasa, he's so breathtaking, but Elsevier plays it very different than Sam Wright because there are different points in their life, right? Mm-hmm. Elsevier was a new dad when he started playing it, you know? And and Sam was a, you know, a, a, a man, you yeah. know? And, you know, an old guy, you know? And so it was, he's still a warrior, but of course they're going to bring their own truth to it. And as you see the show, people do bring, you know, your Nala is very different than Heather's, is very different than... You know, I've, I've seen so many Nala's that, yeah, and, and some Nala's you never have to see again. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, no. but, but um, you know, certain territories. But you're, what you're going to bring to it is very different. When you are singing Shadowland, it's very different than watching um, someone sing it in Mandarin or someone sing it in Japanese and what their own sense of nationalism is and who, how they exist and what battle they had to face to get there. So of course, within the principal things, things can change, but other things should change and shift between actors. But the show itself, there are obligations to the show that aren't going to change. We can make it appropriate, comfortable as we can, but those things are fixed. Other things, we have to change and stay with it. And if I'm going to take 12 minutes out on the 10th anniversary, and then someone says to me, you know, these four lines of dialogue actually make me very uncomfortable, mm. then we're going to change it yeah and you know i'm working on a revival um of aida right now you know the musical that we did right after lion king and um it's this is an interesting example because we're reinvestigating david henry wong wrote the book to lying to to aida elton john and tim rice famously wrote the music and won a tony award for it and the songs are great and you know my beloved heather headley played um uh aida and yet the director of the show is Shelley Williams, who was in the original production and played Nehebka and eventually covered um, Aida. So as we work on that, there's stuff in that show. It's go- going to truly be a revisal, not just a revival, because now looking at this context, I, I go, I, both with the agency of Aida, certain actions she takes or does not take, certain language that she uses, certain words that are said to and in front of other characters, have a different resonance or they're different now for our time and they need to change. Mm-hmm. And I'm completely, that's why I picked Shelly. I'm completely comfortable with that. And we have very frank conversations about it. And that's where we need to be. Now, does, does the audience need to know that? No. Does the audience, is that part of the advertising? No. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's our job, right? That's our job together yeah. to, to work this stuff out. And, and to find it. And to present um, it in that way. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, so we, you talked a bit about 
of with these conversations, um, you're in the Broadway League and have been. You've chaired on the Broadway League. And so I imagine that you all saw each other a lot <laughs> during the past <laughs> 18 months. So how did you all come to the decision that it's time and that it's safe? And, and what has the past 18 months been like for you and for the Broadway League? Well, it was very challenging. Um, when the pandemic, when we first became aware of the pandemic, that it was really going to hit, I was actually abroad. I was in Italy um, in my other life, producing <laughs> a giant benefit um, um, uh, during Carnivale in Venice, featuring uh, my pal Ashley Brown, from oh. who, of course, was right out of college in a tour we did called On the Record, and then she was the 15th Belle, and of course, she was the original Mary Poppins. Yes. So I was with Ashley doing this giant benefit, and we raised a lot of money that night. And then they said, get out of town. We're closing Carnivale. There's a pandemic. Wow. <laughs> and we raced out, leaving bobby pins and wigs flying, you know, and uh, it was Carnivale. And I came back to America, and it was clear I raised Adrian and I hope that you have enjoyed listening to the show thus far. If you'd like to hear the full interview and get access to the curtain call, head on over to 32barcut.com, where you can find a link to our Patreon page. There you will have exclusive access to the entire video collection and private RSS podcast feed, as well as other subscriber-only content. All right, that's all I got. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.